Hello my lovelies and welcome back to another episode of Prime for Crime. I'm your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and hope you enjoy today's case. So today I'm going to be talking about a rather strange and you could say confusing case and that would be the Yuba County Five which was a group of men who all had varying levels of learning and mental difficulties but they were a very close group of friends who went to watch a basketball game one night before their very own game in fact however they never returned home so what happened to these young men before we get into the case though i just want to state that everything i talk about today is information i have found online and i mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned Today's episode involves mention of mental health, specifically schizophrenia, so if this is something that you aren't comfortable listening to at the moment, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the Yuba County Five. Okay, so before we get on to the actual event itself, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on these men, and specifically Gary Mathias. So, whilst I was researching, I couldn't find a huge deal about his childhood, but I did read that he ended up in the army. So, whilst he was stationed in West Germany as part of his United States Army service in the early 1970s, He developed a drug problem, which eventually led him to being diagnosed with schizophrenia, and ultimately, he was psychiatrically discharged from the army. Now, after being discharged, Matthias returned to his parents' home in Yuba City and began treatment at a local mental health hospital. And at first, this was really difficult for him, which I feel it would be for anybody, and He was not aggressive, but he was nearly arrested for assault twice, and he often experienced psychotic episodes. But by 1978, Matthias was being treated on an outpatient basis, along with some medication to help him, and he was actually considered by his physicians to be, quote, one of our sterling success cases, end quote. So, as we've said, after leaving the army due to his health reasons, he was also given army disability pay, but as well as this, he worked with his stepfather, who had a gardening business. But away from work, and outside of his own family, he had a really close set of friends, and these were four slightly older men who either had a slight intellectual disability, or were informally considered at the time to be quote slow learners end quote and these men were Bill Sterling 29, Jack Hewitt 24, Ted Vaya, Vaya? I'm really sorry I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it I think he might be German I'm gonna go with Vaya um, he's 32 and there's Jack Madruga who was 30 and Madruga was also an army veteran just like Gary and Age-wise, Gary at this point was 25 years old. Now, these men all lived in Yuba City and, like Matthias, each one of them lived with their parents and all of them parents referred to them as, quote, the boys, which is rather nice. Like, from the outside, everybody could tell that they were just best friends. They spent a lot of time with each other. And, you know, just like most men, they loved sports. It was their absolute favourites. 
their family said that when they got together it was usually to play a game or to watch one so they played like a lot of basketball together and they even played on a team called the Gateway Gators which was a team supported by a local program for people with mental disabilities. Now on February 25th 1978 the Gators were due to play their first ever game in a week-long tournament sponsored by the Special Olympics where the winner would get a free week in LA which you know, that'd be really exciting. The boys had prepared the night before, you know, some even laying out their kit and asking their parents to wake them up on time, which honestly, I can really just agree with that. I mean, you know, when you were younger and you had a school trip the next day and you spend ages picking out your outfit, laying it all out on the floor and just not being able to sleep because you were that excited. They were feeling that. They were absolutely buzzing for this basketball um, but as well as that, they decided to drive to Chico that night to cheer on the UC Davis basketball team in an away game against Chico State. So Madruga, the only other member of the group besides Matthias, who had a driver's licence, drove the group 50 miles north to Chico in his white and turquoise 1969 Mercury Montego. And just another note, and it will become a bit clearer later on, but the men were only wearing light coats, you know, kind of, it was a cool temperature in the upper Sacramento Valley that night, but they were only wearing kind of light jackets. Um, so yeah, just keep that in mind. So the Davis team won, yay. And obviously the game had finished and the group was just in high spirits, so excited. And they decided to jump back in Madruga's car and they drove a short distance from the Chico State campus to Burr's Market in downtown Chico. And I'm not quite sure, but I think it might have been a bit like a 7-Eleven. I'm not sure, but I think it was obviously a shop because whilst they were there, the group bought snacks, pop to drink and a carton of milk. And it was not long before the store closed at 10pm and the store's clerk later remembered the men because she was annoyed that such a large group had come in and, you know, delayed her from beginning the process of closing the store for the night, which, I mean, if you've ever worked in a shop or even a restaurant, you just know how annoying it is. I mean, obviously you're smiling at them, oh, it's all fine, but like, just internal rage. (laughs) So she absolutely remembers these men coming in. At their homes, some of the parents had stayed up to make sure that they returned home safely, but unfortunately, this would be the last time the men were ever seen alive. When morning came and they had not come home, the police were notified immediately. The police in Butte and Yuba counties got to work straight away and began searching along the route the men took to Chico, but there was no sign of them, which was really disheartening, to be honest. However, a few days later, a ranger from the Plumas National Forest told investigators that he had seen the Montego car parked along Oroville Quincy Road in the forest on the 25th of February. But, you know, at the time, he'd... He'd seen it, he just hadn't thought anything of it, he didn't think it was significant. I mean, it was pretty normal there for residents to kind of drive up the road into the Sierra Nevada on winter weekends to go cross-country skiing. 
But after he'd read that these men were missing, he recognised the car immediately and was like, oh, hang on, this this could be something. So he obviously let the police know immediately and led them to it on the 28th of February. So the police were led to this car and at first there wasn't anything externally that made the police too concerned. However, inside the car there was a few bits of evidence that raised a few strange questions, but nothing major. After looking inside the car, it suggested that the men had been inside it between when they were last seen and when it was abandoned. There were the wrappers, empty cartons and cans they had purchased in Chico. They were still in the car, along with programmes from the basketball game they had watched, and there was also a neatly folded road map of California. Now, it's not huge evidence, it doesn't really scream that something's really wrong, but the one question that really baffled police was its location. It was 70 miles from Chico, and it was... I mean, you can look at maps on Google, actually. I would recommend that because it's kind of hard to kind of describe. But imagine like Chico is in the top corner and then diagonal straight down. There's like a big line and that's where they were meant to be driving home back to Yuba. But it's like in the middle, but up. Like it's so far out the way. It's way far off any direct route to Yuba City or Marysville, which I mean, sometimes... People do like to take scenic routes, but not that far out the way. Plus, none of the men's families could reason as to why they might have driven up. It was like a long, winding, dark, dirt road, you know. It's a winter night as well, deep into a remote forest. And especially with the sort of clothing they were wearing. And especially on the night before their basketball game, they were so looking forward to So at this point, it just doesn't really make sense why the car would be found so far out the way. And to top this off, Madruga's parents said that he didn't like the cold weather and had never been up into the mountains. Likewise, Sterling's father had once taken him to an area that was near where the car was found for a fishing weekend. But Sterling said that he didn't enjoy it and continued to remain at home whenever his dad took fishing trips. So the police just could not figure out why the men had abandoned the car. Like I said, none of it made sense. They had kind of reached nearly four and a half feet in elevation along the road about where the snow line at that time of the year was. And it was kind of just short as well where the road would have been closed for winter. So as you can imagine, they were really high up in the middle of nowhere I think, in fact, the car had actually become stuck in the snowdrifts and even evidence that the men had tried to spin the wheels to get out of it. And police noted that the snow wasn't that deep that five healthy young men would not have been able to push the car out. But again, it doesn't explain why they were there in the first place. Another thing about the car is that the keys weren't present, which kind of suggested at first that the car had been abandoned because it might not have been working properly, you know, with the intention of returning later with help of some sort. But when police hotwired the car, the engine started straight away and the fuel gauge showed that the gas tank was about a quarter full. So there was still enough petrol or whatever in the car there didn't really seem to be anything wrong with it. 
And the mystery deepens further when police towed the car back to the station for a more in-depth investigation. So the underside of the car, they obviously lifted it up and had a look underneath it, um, expecting kind of damage because of where they were found, but there were no dents. There were not even mud scrapes, not even on its low-hanging muffler, despite it being, you know, obviously driven a long distance up a rocky mountain road with lots of bumps and dips. There was literally nothing. I think, if anything, it was a little bit too clean. So this meant either the driver had been so, so careful, or it was been driven by someone who was familiar with the road. In it, that was a familiarity that Madruga was not known to have. It's also important to note that his family said that he would never have let anybody else drive his car. He loved his car and always took special care of it. And the fact that the car was also unlocked with the windows rolled down when it was found, you know, his family just said that it was unlike him. He would never leave his car so unsecure you know, especially in a place like that. Efforts to search the surrounding areas were quickly called off due to a severe snowstorm, and two days later, after searches in snowcats nearly became lost themselves, further search efforts were also called off to the continuing bad weather. And if you don't know what a snowcat is, because I didn't, um, you can Google a picture, but it's basically, imagine like an army tank, but small and it goes in the snow it's like a a small snow tank that's the best way i could put it um yeah so at this point still there was no sign whatsoever of the men other than the mysterious abandoned car in response to local media coverage on the case the police received several reports of some or all of the men being sighted after they had left chico including some reports of them being somewhere else in California, and some people even called in about them being like halfway across the world. It was a little bit crazy, and most of the reports were easily dismissed, but two of the sightings really stood out to police. So the first one was Joseph Schoen, and he told police he inadvertently wound up spending the night of February 25th and, well, and 24th, near where the car was found. So he had driven up there where he had a cabin to check the snowpack in advance of a weekend ski trip with his family. So at about 5.30pm and about 150 feet up the road, he too had got stuck in the snow and in the process of trying to free himself, he realised he was beginning to experience the symptoms of a heart attack. So he just got back in his car, kept the engine running to provide some heat and... Yeah, he just sat there, which would have been quite scary, especially on your own in the middle of nowhere with no way to get out and you think you're having a heart attack. Like, God, that would absolutely freak me out. Six hours later, yes, six hours he lay there in his car with severe pain until he saw headlights coming up behind him and he looked out and saw a car parked behind him with a group of people around it one of which seemed to look like a woman holding a baby. Now, obviously desperate for help, he called out to them, but they stopped talking and quickly turned their headlights out, which, you know, slightly weird. So he left it 
and later on he saw more lights from behind him but this time it was flashlights which like before when he cried for help they turned off and he was just still stuck there desperate need of help and you know these people were there but they just didn't want to help him for whatever reason so joseph said that he first recalled a pickup truck parking about 20 feet behind him briefly and then continuing down the road however he later clarified to police that he couldn't be 100 percent sure about it because you know at the time he was almost delirious from pain you know i think if i was in that situation i don't think my head would be clear either so after his car had run out of petrol in the early hours of the morning his pain was okay enough for him to walk about eight miles down the road to a lodge where the manager drove him back home and he actually passed the abandoned montego car at the point where he had recalled hearing the voices come from and just to clarify the doctors did later confirm that he had in fact experienced a mild heart attack what a poor man so who were the people that ignored this poor man's pleas for help who were they could it have been that group of lads or was it somebody completely different ted via's mother um i'm actually i'm just going to call him ted if that's okay so ted's mother said that ignoring someone's pleas for help was not like her son if he was present at that time she recalled how he and sterling had helped somebody they knew get to the hospital after an overdose so he just wasn't one to leave people in a time where they needed help he would have absolutely gone and helped if he knew that somebody needed it so that was one report but what about the other well this other notable report was from a woman who worked at the store in a small town of brownsville which was 30 miles from where the car was found which they would have reached if they had continued down the road So on March 3rd, the woman who had seen the missing flyers with the men's pictures and information about a reward told the police that four of them had stopped at the store in a red pickup truck two days after the disappearance. The store owner also corroborated her account. The woman said that she could instantly tell that the men weren't from this area because of their, quote, big eyes and facial expressions, end quote. Two of the men, who she identified as Sterling and Hewitt, were in a telephone booth outside the store, whilst the other two went inside. The police said that she was, quote, a credible witness and took her account very seriously. Which, you know, fair enough if she was, but at this point there was a reward out and, you know, some people are are just greedy. So sometimes it is hard to tell people's intentions, but, you know, if the police are saying that she's credible will roll with it. So additional details came out from the star owner who told investigators that the men who he believed to be Ted and Hewitt came in and bought burritos, chocolate milk and soft drinks. However, Ted's brother told the LA Times that whilst driving to Brownsville in a different car and especially missing a basketball game just seemed completely out of character for them, you know, it's especially it's a different car like where have they got that red pickup truck from but also that the owner's description of the two men's behavior did kind of seem consistent with them as ted would quote eat anything he could get his hands on end quote and was often accompanied by hewitt more than the other four which 
you do get that in groups, you know, especially in bigger groups like that, you tend to kind of hang out with some people more than the others. So that could be true, but it could as well just be a coincidence. And as for the telephone booth, well, Hewitt's brother said that he hated using telephones to the point where he would have to answer the phone for Hewitt whenever he got a call from anybody other than the men in his group. So again, it kind of doesn't seem likely, but I don't know, with all this strange evidence not leading police any closer to a clear conclusion about the men's disappearance, police and the families were not ruling out the possibility that they had met with foul play. However, what police were about to discover seemed to suggest otherwise, and in fact, it raised even more questions to the already puzzling mystery. On June 4th, with most of the snow melted, a group of motorcyclists went to a trailer maintained by the Forest Service at a campsite off the road about 19 or 20 miles from where the car was found. Now, they noticed that the front window of the trailer had been broken, which was a little bit odd, but they opened the door anyways, where they were completely taken aback by an awful smell. And if you know anything about true crime, you can probably guess exactly what I'm about to say next. So inside the trailer, they found the decaying body of Ted. And I'm... I will come back to this in a minute because there's quite a lot going on and more discoveries and there's quite a lot of stuff to do with Ted. So I will, honestly, I'll come back to this in a minute, just bear with me. So obviously the police were notified immediately and searchers went back out and returned to Plumas, following the road between the trailer and the site of the car. Now the next day, they sadly found more remains that were later identified as those of Madruga and Sterling on opposite sides of the road about 11.5 miles from the car. Madruga's body had been partially consumed by animals and only bones remained of Sterling's and they were scattered over small areas. Now, autopsies showed that both men had died from hypothermia and police believe that one of them had given into the need to sleep that comes with the last stage of hypothermia, whilst the other stayed by his side and died the same way. I mean, God, I could not even imagine how cold and how scared those poor lads must have been and, you know, the fact that they stayed with each other, they stayed by their side in that sort of time you know that just really shows how loving and how close a friendship that they really had like it's absolutely awful that they died don't get me wrong but really lovely to show how much they cared to each other two days later as part of one of the other search parties Jack Hewitt's father decided to join in the search hopeful to find his missing son but he found something Um, but unfortunately it wasn't the discovery that he was hoping for. Jack's father found his own son's backbone laying underneath a bush two miles northeast of the trailer. His shoes and his jeans nearby helped to identify his body. The next day a deputy sheriff found a skull downhill from that bush 300 feet away and this was later confirmed again to be Hewitt's by dental records. His death, too, was put down to hypothermia. In an area to the northeast of the trailer, about a quarter mile away, 
Searchers found three forest service blankets and a rusted flashlight by the road. However, it couldn't be determined how long those items had been there. They could have been there way before the men went missing, but it also could have been from one of them. Just either way, they couldn't really say. So the only person who still hadn't been found was Matthias. He, he was just gone, he'd vanished, there was no sign of him whatsoever. And since Matthias had probably not taken his medication in this period of time, pictures of him were distributed to mental institutions all over California in the hopes that he might have turned up somewhere, but this wasn't the case, there was still nothing on Matthias. So going back to Ted's body that was found in the trailer. So his body was found on a bed with eight bed sheets wrapped around him, including his head. Now autopsy shows that he had died of a combination of starvation and hypothermia. And he'd lost so much weight and the growth on his beard suggested he had lived as long as 13 weeks from, you know, the time that he'd gone missing. But, you know, at the same time, we... We don't really know how long his beard was to begin with. You know, it'd make it quite difficult to make assumptions solely on that fact. I mean, my boyfriend, for example, hi, Jamie, if you're listening, I'm really sorry, but he can literally shave and within two days, it's like, it's grown out. Like, it's, it's just back. Like, he just grows a ridiculous amount of hair. So, I kind of, I can see where they're coming from, that he, he could have lived that long, 13 weeks, but... Again, he just might have quick growing hair and who knows. Um, But we do know that his feet were very badly frostbitten, almost gangrious. And on the table next to him on the bed, he there were some personal items kind of like on the bedside table. And this included his wallet that still had all his cash in it, a ring with Ted engraved on it and a gold necklace that he also wore. And there was also a gold watch with a missing crystal, which Ted's family said wasn't his. And as well, just to mention, a partially melted candle. Now, he was wearing a villa shirt and lightweight pants, but his shoes were nowhere to be found. But I think the most puzzling thing for investigators at this point was how had he come to this fate? What happened leading up to his body being found? There was no fire that had been set in the trailer's fireplace, despite an ample supply of matches and a load of paperback novels to use as kindling. And within the cabin, there was also heavy-duty clothing which would have kept them warm, but this again remained where it had been stored. There were a dozen sea ration cans from a storage shed outside that had been opened and the contents inside consumed, But there was also another locker in the same shed that held an even greater assortment of dehydrated foods. It was actually enough to keep them all alive and fed for a year, if needs be, but it hadn't been opened. Similar to that, there was another shed nearby that held a butane tank with a valve, and if that had been opened, it would have given the trailer some heat. Ted's family members stated that he did sometimes most of the time lack common sense due to his mental disabilities for example he often asked why he should stop at a stop sign and one night he had to be dragged out of bed whilst the ceiling of his bedroom was burning in a house fire and he said he wouldn't get up because he was afraid he would miss his job if he got up so that could explain why not everything was used 
Another thing about the trailer is that it seemed he had not been there alone and that Matthias and possibly Hewitt had been there with him. Matthias's shoes were in the trailer and the sea rations had been opened with a P-38 can opener which is a small can opener that was issued in the US Armed Forces and I actually googled a picture to have a look at it kind of to see how it was different to a normal can opener and honestly I think I would struggle. I really do think I would struggle opening a can with that but Obviously, Matthias or Madruga would have been familiar with this from their military service, so it is a possibility that they maybe opened the can for him, maybe tried to teach him how to how to do it, and then set back off. And as for the shoes, again, it's possible that Matthias's feet were also swollen from frostbite. He could have decided to put on Ted's shoes um, if he'd have ventured outside, maybe to try and get help. And the sheets all over Ted's body also suggested that one of the others had been there with him. I think maybe because of how he was wrapped up. Even knowing that four of the five men had died out there, investigators still couldn't completely explain what had led to their deaths. They still found no explanation at all for why the men were even there in the first place. However, they did learn that Matthias had friends in a small town of Farbstown and police believed it was possible that in an attempt to visit them on the way back home that the men had taken a wrong turn near Oroville that put them on the mountain road instead. Now, for whatever reason, the men had left the car and instead of going back down the road, they just decided to continue going in the direction they were originally going. But... My only problem with this is that the men's lives were structured and very predictable and to me anyway, it just seemed a little bit out of character. I mean, I may be wrong, I don't know these men personally, but from what I've read and from what the families have kind of said, it just seemed a little bit wrong to me. Like, you know, it doesn't seem consistent with their lives and they were excited for the basketball game they would they would have wanted to go home to make sure they didn't miss that basketball game so i don't really know about that one i mean i don't know what you guys think you'll have to let me know okay so i'm going to talk you through a few different theories that police have and also people online so the day before the men went missing a forest service snowcat you know the mini snow tanks had gone along the road in that direction to clear the snow off a trailer roof so it wouldn't collapse. Now, it was a possibility, or so the police believed, that the group had decided to follow the tracks the snowcat left to wherever they led in hopes that they'd be able to find some sort of shelter not too far away. And it's most likely that Madruga and Sterling had died of hypothermia about halfway through the long walk to the trailer. And it's assumed that once they found the trailer, the other three men broke the window to enter, since it was locked. They might have thought it was private property and may have feared being arrested for theft if they used anything that they'd found there. And after Ted had died, or after the others thought that he had, they may have tried to get back to civilization to try and find some help. So that's one thing that the police think really happened, but you know, then again, we just really don't know. It could have been completely different to that. There is a lot of speculation and different theories online. 
mainly on why the two groups were found so far apart. For example, you know, could there have been some sort of disagreement as to what course of action to take? Maybe some of them wanted to keep going further whilst the others kind of wanted to go back. So there is another theory or possibility that I have read online and I'm going to tell you it even though I don't particularly agree with it. Um, So the other possibility is that Matthias, who like I said earlier did not have his medication, possibly began acting erratically due to the high stress situation and this could have maybe frightened the others into running away. But some people also think that he maybe started to have an episode and drove himself or directed them up into the hills because he was paranoid about something. But, you know, again, I just... We don't know Matthias personally. We don't know what state of mind he would have been in or how he deals with it. It's genuinely all just speculation and we can't judge him or make presumptions on on this because it's not fact. We don't know how long it takes his tablets to kind of wear off. We don't know anything. We're not doctors, okay? So I read that and I kind of thought, hmm, it could be. But then the more you think about it, the more it just doesn't really make sense. But it is a possibility that the men had been scared by something, just not necessarily Matthias. So we have this Joseph guy, the heart attack guy, right? And you know, the stress levels were probably high after they'd got out of the car and whether it be due to Matthias or probably not, if they got out of the car in the middle of the woods and heard some guy yelling for help in the distance, you know, I can only imagine it probably shocked them or scared them. I mean, it would definitely, definitely scare me. I'd I'd be off. I'd be like, nope, say that, I'm off. You know, so they could have been trying to escape the danger as far as they know. And the car was stuck, so they just run for the hills and hide, hoping for the best, you know. And this seems supported somewhat by the fact that the person yelling for help, Joseph, said that the men had stopped talking as soon as he heard them yell. And they later came back with flashlights and, again, shut them off and left when they heard him. So now in a panic, they might have thought that his yells were part of this danger that they believed they were escaping. They could have gone, come back with the flashlights, kind of investigate, heard him yelling again and thought, no, this isn't right, you know, it genuinely could have just been that. However, one aspect about Joseph's account of that night was the fact that he saw what he, well, what he thought was a woman with a baby. You know, what was all that about? I mean, could could it have been some other people that had something to do with the men's death? You know, suppose these other people were set out with bad intentions. You know, in the latter scenario, it's possible that the attacker was someone masquerading as a woman with a fake baby, which could possibly be, you know, it's late at night, there is no light about but the car's headlights. And if visibility was affected weather-wise, you know... With this in mind, from a distance, it might have been believable enough for the group not to realise it was an imposter before it was too late. You know, it could also explain why the car was driven carefully and slowly, but maybe he mistook this woman for one of the men. You know, he was in a lot of pain. He might not have been fully aware of what he was seeing. Oh, I don't know, it's just so frustrating. Like, there's so many different things. Like, you think you've got it figured out, and then you realise something else and think, oh, hang on, what about this? It's honestly, it's just one of them cases, and I don't know, there's just too much to think about. But, you know, let's just not forget, 
Matthias still hasn't been found. Nobody knows if he is alive out in the world somewhere, living his best life, or if he came to the same fate as his friends. You know, either way, I don't think Matthias was to blame for this. I really don't. I, I don't think any of them meant for this to happen. You know, I do think the answer's probably, you know, Occam's razor, you know, that they, for whatever reason it may have been, decided to detour, get lost, become disorientated and just due to various circumstances couldn't rescue themselves you know kind of just the elements overcome them they were just trying their best and I think that's probably the most likely scenario sometimes the most likely one is the right one but you know what do you think have a think about it it'll be playing in your mind all night you will not be able to go to sleep tonight because this will just be on your mind because it absolutely did me. I cannot stop thinking about this case every day. And that does conclude today's episode. Thank you for listening. I know it's been a pretty tough one and there's so much yet so little it can get really confusing and I'm sorry if I feel like I was rambling a little bit and my voice is actually going. I think I've got a little bit of a sore throat coming on. Um... But yeah, it's a really weird one and it's really got me thinking. There's just so many different possible theories and the facts that we probably won't ever know and we still don't know where Matthias is. You know, it must be so, so difficult for his parents. You know, as well as the other men's families, you know, I can't imagine what they're going through. I can't imagine what the men went through. It must have been, they must have been so scared and so cold you know, I don't think, unfortunately, we're ever, ever going to get answers, but we can always hope and pray for Matthias, um, maybe one day in the future we will find out, you know, but yeah, that is all from me, thank you very much for listening, and you have to join me next week for the next episode, but in the meantime, please head over to the Prime for Crime TikTok, where I post small snippets of cases daily, and I'm also trying to get more missing persons cases out there to try and spread the word as much as I can um so I would really appreciate it if you have a look maybe share comment like try and engage as much as possible and get the word out there for these people and um yeah I will see you next week see you later